Hey, good morning, everyone. You probably have no idea who I am. And uh, we're going to keep it that way. Or No. Um, my name is Matt H. That is true. Uh, Matt Hamilton is my name. And uh, I'm not just a slightly larger, heavier, balder version of Matt Heverly. But I am a pastor now here at Edgewater. I joined your crew, and I'm really happy about that. So that's good. Wait, don't, don't clap yet. Uh, so anyway, I get the pleasure of just sharing God's Word with you this morning and hanging out with you this morning. So let's pray once more, and then let's dive into the Word together. Father God, you are good, and you have been good and we are promised and have seen that you're good today, and you will continue to be. That your word is true and is truth. And so we can, every one of us, every age, every experience in life right now can just relax and rest on your word. We can know, Lord, that you are going to speak to us, that you have things to share with us. And we hope and pray that through your son, Jesus, we just be a blessing, Father, to you as well. And it's in his name we pray. Amen. 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 Okay, so turn to the book of 2 Kings, if you can find it. 2 Kings chapter 4. And before we jump into that, I don't know if you've had the experience, perhaps, where you have wanted to do something, you've expected to either see something or someone, and you've had something in your mind of what it was going to be like. Where you, where you thought, if I meet this person or if I do this thing, here's what I think it's going to be like. And then when you get there and you get face to face with the person or the thing, you find out it's entirely different, right? I used to be a youth pastor and uh, up in Portland, so we had nothing but what I called at the time city slickers, right? These are all kids that grew up. It's not their fault, poor kids. They grew up right in the middle of the city. And uh, they grew up in a, a pretty wealthy, affluent neighborhood most of these kids came from. And they really had never done anything like fun, like we get to do. I grew up here in the valley, like we get to do just swimming in rivers, jumping off rocks, just stuff that most of us just kind of go, well, yeah, right? I mean, that's just kind of what you do. What else would you do in the summertime? So when I was a youth pastor, I would load all these kids up in buses and we would bring them down here on our way to Magic Mountain in Southern Cal or whatever. And we would stop somewhere in the Rogue Valley and we'd swim in the river. We'd take a river trip. We'd jump off rocks or whatever. And I started telling them in our youth group meetings about our next trip that we we're going to stop at a place down in Southern Oregon called Rock Point Bridge, which you probably know of. It's right in Gold Hill up the river here. And it's a nice bridge to jump off of, right? It's like 30 feet, 25, 30 feet. It's very easy if you haven't jumped off a bridge before with none of these kids have. And uh, when I started really getting them fired up about it, well, there was one kid in our group that is in every youth group. His name was John, and we called him John the Beast, all right? And John the Beast, was he was all in on everything, all right? So, if, so he was the kid. We're like, all right, somebody grab a guitar. We're going to worship. He just stands. He's like, yeah, right? That guy. So he started saying, all right, we're going to go on this trip. He goes, I can't wait to jump off Rock Point Bridge because it's going to be awesome. And he would get super fired up about it. And he would start talking to me. He's like, have you ever backflipped off it? And I'm like, no, I've, I think I've dove off it, but no, not backflip. He's like, I'm going to backflip off it. He's like, I'm going to do a gainer off it. I'm going to do, he goes, I cannot wait. I am all in. So we loaded them all up. 
took them all down here. We pulled off the road. It was like a million degrees like it gets in the summer. And we lined about 35 or 40 high schoolers up along Rock Point Bridge. Now, trust me, I know I'm a pastor here now. If I ever take your kids on a trip, we'll get a waiver. It'll be okay. It's, <laughs> it's fine. So just forget that part of the, as we go into the story. So we line them all up on the edge of the bridge, and they're all standing there. And myself and the one of them that has grown up in the country up outside of Portland, we jumped. And everybody else just stood there and watched. And John, the beast, stood right in the middle, of course, because that's where he always was, probably 20, 30 kids that way, 20, 30 kids that way. And he's looking down. And he starts just slightly, you know how that is? Shaking. And at first he's like this, and then it's this. And everybody else follows his lead, right? All these other kids are starting to freak out. So this other kid, Andrew, and I jump off, run back up jump off. Andrew's jumping off backwards, you know, and he's doing flips and he's like, come on, come on. And I start to realize that come face to face with giant rock point bridge, you know, that's probably 25 feet off the water. John the beast is just a mouse. You know what I mean? He's like, he's got nothing. And all the other kids start freaking out. So I was standing behind them debating how many I could push, you know, at one time. And when that happened, a UPS, like triple trailer UPS truck came down the road. And at that point, it, it's a narrow bridge now, but if you remember, this is like 15 years ago, it was even narrower. And so the UPS truck stops and the kids are all standing there and he's kind of leaning out the window looking at me like, come on, buddy, you know, let's go. I got things to do. So I look at him, I looked at the kids and I just went, let's go, let's go. And he, he kind of questions me, looks, he's like, really? And I go, come on. And he just goes, yes. And so he starts revving the engine up on this giant thing and coming down Rock Point Bridge. And he's going like two miles an hour, seriously. But it felt like a hundred, you know, if you were standing there. So I start shouting. A couple of the kids looked and I'm like, go, get off the bridge, go. And so I said, you got to jump. And a few of them on the end managed to make it around to safety. And the rest of them, this guy laid on the horn, the whole deal. I've never met him. I've never seen him again. If you're here, please come talk to me. A UPS driver somewhere down here. He started laying on the horn. He's revving the engine. And sure enough, these kids, I'm like, it's either die or jump. And so they start jumping. But John literally held his ground, knees just knocking together. And he climbed about halfway down and he turns around, he looks at the truck and then he just got up and bailed, just jumped off right as the truck almost smashed him into, you know, Seriously, it was like, the truck was like, but the kids didn't feel that at all. So two things happened. One, the UPS guy made it all the way across, parked his truck, got out, came up to me and gave me a high five. And he's like, that was the greatest driving day of my life. <laughs> and then he went on his way. And so we had a bond. Uh, and then secondly, secondly, John the Beast, later when describing our quick trip to California, described it to his mom as this. He says, it was World War III. That's what he... So you have a certain image in your mind. You, you, you see something. You think, I'm going to go face to face with this thing. And then you're like, oh, wait a minute. It's a tiny bit different than what I thought. Sometimes in a bad way. And sometimes, I hope this morning, in a really good way. Because we're going to read something here in 2 Kings where someone comes face to face literally face-to-face with a prophet. And it's our goal, it's my hope this morning that you and I 
come face to face with our prophet, Jesus Christ. But here's the story of an Old Testament prophet in action. It's in 2 Kings chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 8. It says this, that it fell on a certain day that Elisha the prophet passed to Shunem, and there there was a great woman. And she asked him to come in and eat bread. And so every time he passed by, he turned into her house and ate bread. So the woman said to her husband, I perceive that this is a holy man, a prophet, who comes by us all the time. Let us make for him a room in our house up on the wall, which sounds a little odd to me, but hey, it's Old Testament, up on the wall. And then whenever he comes by, he can come in. We'll put a bed there, a table, a stool, and he can turn in and that will be his own place, right? To rest. So on a certain day, it says, Elisha came by and he went in and he laid there and rested. And then verse 12, he said to his servant named Gehazi, he said, call the woman. And when she came and stood before him, he said, you have been good to us with all of this care. In other words, you've just done awesome stuff for us. Then he says, what can I do for you? He says, do you want me to speak to your king? Do you want me to talk to the captain of the host, the soldiers? And she gives him a great answer. She says, no, I live among my own people. In other words, he goes, hey, what, what can we possibly do for you? You have totally blessed us. And I am here as a representative of God, of Yahweh. And so what can we do? How, how can we help? I know the king, I can talk to him. It's kind of like saying, do you want to break on your taxes? It's basically what it is. And all of us are like, she said, no, what? It's kind of like that. Hey, we'll talk to the soldier. Are, are you getting treated well around the neighborhood? And she goes, no, I, I live among my own people. In other words, she's like, I'm good. I, I have community, which is why, by the way, side note, you need to get involved in one of our home groups here at Edgewater. Because if you have community, if you have people that you live around, she's like, no, I'm fine. Actually, we're totally taken care of. We got everything we need. And then it says that the prophet's servant said, here's how we can help. Verse 14, she has no child and her husband is old. Bad combo, right? Okay, she's got no children. And by the way, her husband is old. Now, thankfully, in his case, he's only old. If you remember last week or the week before, as we were reading through the story of Abraham, the Bible said he was old, and then it also said that he was what? You remember? Well-stricken in age, okay? This guy's only old. He's not yet well-stricken in age. He's only old. But I know he's getting close because two chapters later, there's a story about this lady, and this guy ain't nowhere to be found, all right? So he's old, and, he ha and they have no son. Now, when you and I hear that, when people hear things on the earth that don't seem to work out, this woman is old, and she has no son, we go... Ah, oh, bummer. That's tough. And God goes, awesome. Watch this. This is actually the stuff that I just love. I picture, I know this is not, don't send emails. I know this is not accurate probably theologically, but I picture the Lord, the Father in heaven, literally looking down at us and somebody says, I, I'm, I'm old, I have no children. And everybody on the earth goes, bummer. And God just kind of nudges Michael or one of the angels. He just goes, check this out. Watch this. This is going to be great. This is totally where I thrive. This is, this is my thing. And sure enough, it says there that Elisha said to her in verse 16, about this season, according to the time of life, nine months, 
you will embrace a son. So she said to him, do not lie to me, man of God. Do not deceive me. So the woman conceived and she bore a son at that season that Elisha had said to her according to the time of life. Now, verse 18, the story changes a bit. It's happy, it's great. This woman was missing something and the Lord through the prophet gave her that thing that she really desired. But now it says in verse 18 that the child grew and he went out to his father to help with the reapers. In other words, out in the field, reaping the wheat. And he, he said to his father, the child did, my head, my head. In other words, I, I got a headache. I'm sick. My head, my head. And so his father said to one of the servants, take him to his mother, <laughs> right? And all the kids in here are like, yeah, that's exactly what happens. Okay, you go, oh man, I don't feel good. Go to mom. I don't, I, what am I going to do, right? That's exactly what this guy does. He says, take him to his mother. And so he took him to the mother brought him to his mother. He sat, verse 20, on her knees until noon, and then he died. So what does she do? And this is where the story gets crazy. It says that she got up and took the boy and laid him on the bed of the man of God. Remember in that little room. And she shut the door on him and she went out. And she called to her husband, Crazy. She doesn't say, he's dead. Our only son is dead. It says she called to her husband and she said, hey, send me one of the servants and send me a donkey so that I can run and find the man of God. And then her husband says, why do you want to go find the man of God? It's not a new moon. It's not a Sabbath. And she said, it's okay. It's kind of like this. She runs to her husband. She says, hey, I need to go find the man of God, the prophet. I need to go find that guy. Give me a fast servant. Give me a fast donkey. I don't know if there is a fast donkey, but you get the idea. And we got to get out of here as fast as possible. Then he says, in our vernacular, he goes, the man of God, church, basically. Is it Christmas? Is it Easter? <laughs> is it a holiday? Is it New Year's Eve? Is kind of what the guy's asking. He says, it's not a new moon. It's not a Sabbath. Why in the world would you go find this guy? All right, why do you need to go find him? This guy, the father's not all that bright, but we'll see him later in action. So, so it says that she saddled up a donkey, verse 24, and she said to the man who drove it, go forward, do not slack your riding for me unless I ask you. Go as hard and as fast as you could possibly go. So she went and she came to the man of God who was there at Mount Carmel. And it came to pass that when the man of God saw her afar off, that he said to Gehazi, his servant, behold, there's that woman from Shunem. Go ask her, meet her, and say to her, is everything okay with you? Is everything okay with your husband? I know he's old. Is everything okay with your husband? Is everything okay with the child? And so he did, and she answered the servant, it is well. Yeah, everything's fine. Then it says that she came to the man of God up on the hill. And it says that she grabbed a hold of Elisha by the feet. But Gehazi, the servant, came near to drag her away. And then the man of God said, leave her alone for her soul is troubled within her. And the Lord has hid the reason from me and has not told me. So you have to picture this with me for just a second. If you're a typical Bible reader like me, you picture these things 
in a clean slate. You picture Bible stories maybe in a Sunday school coloring book. You picture them maybe up on a stage, somebody talking about them. They don't seem real. You have to understand this is a mountain, all right? This is a giant mountain, Mount Carmel. There's a prophet standing on the top of it. I always think that they look like superheroes. Maybe that's just because I'm a dude, but they're always like, you know what I mean? He's just gazing out, just waiting for the word of the Lord. I don't know. But he's just standing up there, and then he sees the woman, and his servants may be behind him just waiting for something to happen. I don't know. And the woman runs up. He says, go ask that lady. There she is. She's the one with the son and the husband. Go see if she's okay. And as the servant does so, we know that her husband's old and pretty well unattached to what's going on in the home. Secondly, her son is dead. And she just tells him it's fine and runs ahead. And this is a real man standing on a real mountain. Years and years ago, she dives on the ground and grabs onto his feet totally dives and just snags him by the feet. And then the servant comes up behind, out of breath perhaps. Gehazi comes up behind, grabs onto her and starts trying to drag her off. There's three people on this mountain. There's the prophet standing there and a woman who it would have been trouble even for them to just communicate at that time, let alone just a man or woman, let alone that he's a prophet. And now she's brushed by everybody and she's grabbing onto his feet. And his servant is probably, I'm picturing him yelling, screaming, get off, knock it off. He's trying to pull her off of this man of God. And she's just clinging to him with all her might. That actually happened. That's a real story. This woman is totally freaked out. Her, her soul, as the Bible said, was troubled. And then this is where Elisha kind of cracks me up. So picture that scene. Then Elisha, I think, gazes up into the heavens and says, let her be. <laughs> I perceive that her soul is troubled, right? Doesn't take a prophet to perceive that. This woman has got serious trouble. So she says to him, did I not say, don't lie to me? Did I ask you for a son? In other words, I didn't ask for this. I, I desired it. God gave it. God gave it through you, but I told you, don't lie to me. This isn't, this isn't something that I can mess around with. This is important to me. And so it says that he told his servant, start running. Take my staff in your hand. Go your way. Don't meet anybody. Don't talk to anybody. If anybody talks to you, don't answer them. Run to the child and lay my staff, my big stick, if you will, on the face of the child. And so the mother of the child, after she heard this, she said to him, Elisha the prophet, as God lives and as you live, I will not leave you. And so he arose and followed her. Gehazi takes off. The woman just stays there, stretched out on the ground, clinging to the feet of the prophet. And so finally the prophet goes, all right, let's go. Here we go. We better take off. Now the story goes ahead. Gehazi makes it to the room where the kid is and he does something that's similar to things that you and I have done. Maybe you're an employee here. You get sent on a task. Maybe you're a kid, a teenager. You've tried to do chores for your parents, work on a car for your dad, whatever it is. You go to do something and it doesn't work. You ever had that experience? That's exactly what poor Gehazi does here. He runs up. He's got the stick in his hand, the staff, and he lays it on the kid. And I just picture him stepping back and going, Okay, that was the only direction he had, right? Then maybe he prays, adjusts the stick. But eventually it says he had to pick up the stick, the staff, 
and run back <laughs> to Elisha, probably stand there. And I, maybe I'm the only guy that fails a lot, but I know what that feels like, where you're like, hey, here's your stick. Um, it didn't work. <laughs> nothing, ha- nothing happened. I don't, I don't, here's your stick. I think it's broken or something. I don't know. Right? Not my fault. It's the stick. All right? But regardless, Elisha takes off, runs in, and the Bible said that he then went into the room where the boy was laying on his bed. And it says, he shut the door and it was only Elisha, the prophet, and the boy. Those are the only two in the room. And it said that he came, verse 33, shut the door and verse 34, he laid, Elisha did, he laid down upon the child and he put his mouth on the child's mouth and his eyes on the child's eyes. And he put his hands right on the boy's hands and then he stretched himself out flat, laying on the child, stretched himself. And then it says that the child's flesh started to get warm. He was beginning to come to life. Then it says that he went back down to the house, walked around in the house, went up, stretched himself on the child again. The child then sneezed seven times and opened his eyes, came back to life. Then Gehazi called the woman, she came and she received her child, took him up, the Bible says, alive. Now, you might be thinking, why did he walk around the house? Why did he sneeze seven times? What's the answer there? The answer is, come next week and I'm sure Matt Heverly will work it into the book of Genesis. All right. (laughs) Because A, I have no idea and B, if I did, we wouldn't have time this morning to touch it. So, he sneezed seven times and then all of a sudden opened his eyes and he was alive. Now, here's the thing. You and I today... You and I are in one of two camps in this story. Maybe you are the boy. Maybe you are the boy and you are in need of resurrection. You are in absolute need of, I've got to, I'm dead. Maybe during the time of worship that we had as we praised God, you're thinking, I don't know what this is about. Everybody else seems to be a little excited. That guy Trevor up front seems to be pretty enjoying himself, seems to feel something. There seems to be something going on, but I've got, I'm dead. I I don't have anything. Maybe you're like that boy and you're dead. If so, the beauty of what our prophet, Jesus Christ, the prophet from Deuteronomy 18, the Bible talks about, greater than Elisha, the son of God, Jesus, our prophet, came And he did what Elisha did for this boy, for me and for you. He came to the earth and he saw the things that you see. He put his eyes where your eyes are. He fully became, the Bible says, a man. He heard the things you hear. His nose matched with your nose, his hands with ours. He became in every single way, the Bible declares, fully a man. And then, like Elisha did with this kid, our prophet Jesus stretched himself out and he died on your behalf. He matched up with us. He knows who you are. He knows who I am. He knows what we went through. In Hebrews chapter four, I'll read this to you real quickly. It says in verse 14 of Hebrews four, that we have not only a prophet in Jesus, but we have a high priest, someone that can go before God on our behalf. We have a high priest who's passed into the heavens, Jesus Christ, the son of God. We don't have a high priest, it says in verse 15, 
who can't be touched with how we feel in our sin and our infirmities because he was in every way tempted exactly as we are, yet he was without sin. Now, when you hear that, when I hear that, often people might say to me and you, hey, Jesus, God's son, he understands what you're going through. And often we'll turn to this passage. Look, he was here. He was a human. He was tempted. He was tested in every single way like you and I are, but he passed every test. That sounds good, the first half, right? He knows what it's like to be a human, to be in this weak form, in this flesh. But the second half of that, to me, doesn't sound very welcoming. And maybe it doesn't sound very welcoming to you. Because I go, great, Jesus knows exactly what it's like to be tempted, to be tested in every way. And then it says, and by the way, he rocked it. He passed. And I'm like, oh. (laughs) So I really don't know what it's like to be Jesus. And if that's the case, and he passed every test, then Jesus really doesn't know what it's like to be me. And so how can I come to him? How can I just walk right up in baptism, in prayer, in communion? How do I come in singing praise to him? How can I possibly come to him? Because he, yeah, I understand he forgives it, but he really doesn't know. It's just like this long away, yeah, nice try, Matt. I passed it all, you didn't. How could he actually identify with me? How could he love me through that without truly knowing the guilt and the the pain and things that other people have done to me that I've done to others, how I've missed the mark? Well, the answer to that is this, that it wasn't in Jesus' life only that he identifies with you and I and how he lived perfectly. It was more so in his death. Isaiah 53 says this in verse four, truly, For sure, he, Jesus, has borne our grief and he's carried our sorrow. We esteemed him. We we looked at him as he was smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions, bruised for our iniquities. The punishment of our peace was laid upon him with his stripes. We are healed. And then verse six of Isaiah 53 says this. All we like sheep have gone astray, We have turned everyone to his own way, but the Lord has laid on Jesus, on him, the iniquity or the sin of us all. You see, Jesus doesn't just identify with you and I. He didn't just come and stretch out and say, Matt, I see the things you see. I became a human. Okay, I'm walking here on the earth. I identify. Yes, it's tough work, but I got it done. You didn't. He definitely did that, and he had the victory. But even more so, what he identifies with is that I say, well, I'm a, I'm a husband, and you were never a husband, Jesus. How can you identify with that? But I'm a husband, and I don't really do very well. As a matter of fact, I do pretty poorly a lot of the time. I'm a father, and I don't really get that. My kids, maybe like some of yours, are just at the point where they're old. One's leaving the house, one's almost, and you're like, yeah, you know, we didn't do very well there. <laughs> I don't really know. I'm not sure how great I did. Did Jesus feel that? Did he have children? Was Jesus a boss? Was he an employee? Some of you go, was Jesus a woman? No. So how does he identify with me in my weakness? It was there, as Isaiah 53 says, on the cross, where all of your weakness, all of mine, all of our sin, all the iniquity that others have done, that you have done to them was all laid on him. 
So Jesus does not just identify in general with humanity's failure. He identifies with yours. He actually felt your failure. Does Jesus know what it feels like to be a sinner? The answer is not in his life, no, but in his death, yes. That he absolutely knows whatever you feel right now at this second that you've fallen short in. He knows that exact thought and that exact feeling and the depth of that. How great is that? You can then come face to face with God, face to face with him through his son, Jesus Christ. And if you come to him this morning, maybe as that boy, you've got to be totally resurrected. I just need to believe in him. I just need him to raise me from the dead and just give me life. Or maybe like the mom who says, I've had things that God has done that he's given me and I've lost them. I'm, I'm lost along the way and I need resurrection. I need him to fulfill me again. Then for any of us that find ourselves in either of those camps, we can do that this morning. We can do that today. In just a minute, as we close the service, you can have an opportunity to respond to Jesus in that way. If you're like that boy, you're like, I just need new life. I need to be risen from the dead. I need resurrection. Then come, be baptized. Come on up. Say, I just want to give my life to him. Or come and meet with somebody. There's men and women that'll be up here over on my right, your left, to pray and to talk to you. To just for you to say, I, I need to be resurrected. I need to know what it means to be matched up with him, to look at him and have him look at me and just say, will you take me? And he says, yes, I will. I'll accept you. Or if you're like that woman and you just think, man, I'm in, I'm in need. Because maybe my own life physically, my marriage maybe, maybe some other relationships, maybe my mind or my heart, I've lost stuff and, and it's died, then all you have to do is come to him as well and don't let go of his feet. Don't come to me. Don't come to a neighbor. Just come to Jesus himself because he's the only one that understands. He knows what it's like, believe it or not, to be a mom and a wife, a boyfriend, a girlfriend, because he's felt all of it. He knows what it's like to be a teenager he knows what it's like to be a millennial because he's experienced it, right? He knows. You might sit here and go, well, there's no way. You guys don't understand our generation. You're right, I don't. But he does completely because he's already taken on all of the shame and all the guilt that my generation and every generation has produced. So this morning, rejoice and come to him. Don't let go of his feet. Say, I need you to fulfill those things that have been lost like that woman, or maybe I need you to just rise me from the dead. I need you to, to raise me up. Come and be baptized. Come and pray. Come and just talk to someone even and just say, I need, I need help walking to Jesus. I need help to get to the mountain of Mount Carmel and find out what it's all about so I can grab onto his feet too. So let's pray together and take action on that this morning. Father, thank you for sending Jesus. Thank you for what it took to do that. Thank you for the, the opportunity for us today to just take a few minutes and sit down and read a story that reminds us that we can come and cling to your feet and worship you. And you receive us because you've totally washed away all of our sin. Thank you that we can come this morning and be resurrected. And I pray that people would today be baptized and just say, we need you. We have new life in you. We want to walk with you. 
Jesus, whatever it takes, move us forward today to be the people that are resurrected, to be the people that are fulfilled by you. We thank you for the story. Jesus, I thank you for your word, and I thank you so much for Edgewater. I thank you for this family and for giving us the opportunity to gather. We feel very much like that woman. We have our people. We live amongst our own people, and we want to just rejoice even in that and be fulfilled even in that. So be magnified, God, in our time together today. We love you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, God bless you guys. You're dismissed.